they wanted to buy the car, but if I didn't in a healthy way, which is something that you'd mentioned here, manipulate them into getting, it was always like they already wanted it, but I need to help them get there. Once I kind of had that, I mean, I was 19 years old. I was a little more ruthless back then, but it, it really came down to that, that it was a healthy manipulation. It was, I can tell you already want this. But why, Jason? When, why? Because they're going to buy it anyway. manipulate them? But why did you have to manipulate them? And this is the first, this is the first objection to every sale of every, of any product everywhere in the world. The first objection is they don't trust you as a salesperson. They don't like you as a salesperson because they think you're going to take advantage of them. You're going to sell them something they don't want. You're going to sell yeah. them something that's more than they could have got at someplace else. They don't trust you, which means they don't like you, right? That's why you had to manipulate them. You had to get them, manipulate them to get them to believe what you were telling them, even though they didn't trust you. So no matter what it is you're selling, you have to understand the first objection is people don't like salespeople. The Move Entrepreneur Evolved Podcast. Get on it. And we're back with another episode of the Moved Entrepreneur Evolved Podcast. Today, I'm excited for our guest, somebody that knows how to negotiate sales, business, everybody that's going to watch this episode, I think we're going to get some real gems here. But before we get going, please like and subscribe. There's also, like I always say, there's some amazing people that have been on the podcast before this amazing guest. Make sure you check them out. But today, all the focus is on you, Mr. Brian Will. How you doing, man? Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I think we're going to have some fun. This will be a good one. Yeah, man. Yeah. I was excited to have you on. Um, you know, I, I like to be as open as possible, but our, our relationships, when we do these podcasts and stuff like that, always amaze me on how I meet people. And I was just going to open it up that, uh, you did a really good job. Uh, you know, the story here is that, uh, Brian actually sent me a message. I'd sent him a video and, and he gave a real respectable, uh, opinion on things that I could do better, or even questioning the ways that I was doing certain things. And, where did that all start? Um, I think that that is a talent to be able to do what you did on a respectable way. Um, but where did this structure in your life start? I'm sure it was pretty early on. I, my background is rough. I mean, I came from busted, broken home, emotional, physical, sexual abused home, kicked out of high school, failed out at 16, uh, got back in and graduated, kicked out of the house, went into the military, had no place to go. Um, really needed a place to sleep and eat. So joined the military, did a year active duty, went to the National Guard, got out, tried to hold a job, couldn't because I had a giant chip on my shoulder. I hated authority, couldn't stand being told what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do it myself. It was pretty much my mantra at, at 18, 19 years old. And so very quickly figured out that I was basically unemployable and started, so I had to start my own business. Figured out I couldn't work for anybody else. We'll see if I can work for myself. And uh, kinda, failed a lot kinda, over the next kind of pause you just really quick. I, I, I just to kind of slow it because I think it's a real good thing. I, I actually found your picture of you in the military and I was looking at it and I was thinking, <laughs> man, did. yeah, 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 I did. Um, had your hat on, have your, uh, your bill on, and, and it was a post about you and your buddies. Had you looked back 30 years? And I think that, um, it's interesting when we say these things because in that picture, you look strong. You look like life's ahead of you. And so I think that it's a testament that we all are kind of going through some shit. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on in people's heads. And I think, you know, if you've been around, done anything, you kind of know that. Yeah, I, th I think it's so true. Um, you know, as we go back, you started your first business. I was, uh, you know, we have sales here and it's easy to grab it. 
Um, but early on, you know, out of necessity, what was that? What was that thing that attached you? What was the business adventure that you took on? First thing I did, again, remembering no education of any kind, basically no clue what I was doing. So I did landscaping. I figured anybody could mow grass and dig holes. And so I'd gone to work for a landscaping company right after I got married and I was mowing grass for four bucks an hour and thought, well, anybody can do this. So I quit my job and started my first business. And that's how it launched. Eight years later, I had seven franchises in the landscape industry. Okay. Okay. We got to unpack that. That was pretty good. So you, you, <laughs> I got to just throw that one over, you know, you got to get my protein shake in, but you, you pack that. So you went in from a, a point of started mowing. So you stayed in the same uh, niche. You started to become a master of what some people would say of that, of that skill. Um, and then you started hiring people. Um, what were in those early, early stages of, um, you know, failed forward attempts that you'd remember? Maybe the whole thing is kind of, you thought. kind of funny, Jason. I had no idea literally what I was doing in the landscaping business. I joke around that I hired some guy to help me design one landscaping project in one person's front yard outside of mowing grass. And then I resold that same design probably 200 times over the next couple of years. If you drive around Atlanta, you'll see the same landscape design at 200 different houses because I didn't know how to do anything else. So I did one thing and I, and I sold it over and over and over and over and over. And then eventually got to the point where we were doing well and wanted to sell the business and met a broker. And he said, okay, if I sell your business for half a million dollars, what are you going to do then? Because you can't do landscaping anymore and you have no skill sets, no education. What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He said, why don't you franchise it? I said, like McDonald's? Yeah, right. I'm not going to do that. I don't have anything. I have no idea how to do that. So he said, well, I tell you what, bring me on as a business partner. You do what you do. I'll franchise the company and we'll start selling franchises. I said, all right, that sounds good. So we started franchising the business. We had seven franchises two years later. And then everything collapsed and fell apart and I lost everything. That's a whole nother story. But I did learn a lot of business lessons about franchising and partners and business in general uh, and that big failure before I went on to my next uh, venture. Don't they always say like, um, you really aren't in business until you get sued? Oh my gosh. I used to, I, I jokingly say there's no justice in justice. I just gotta be honest with you. There's when not. you've had a judge, when you've had a judge look you in the eye and said, Mr. Will, I don't care what your contract says. This is my court and we will do what I want here. And you go, wait a minute, but I thought this was about the law. I thought this was about contracts. No, it's about whatever the judge thinks. Don't forget that when you get sued. And it's really interesting because, you know, listening to your story, um, you know, the kind of like, I'm going to do whatever I want, do these things. And then you get to a point in life where sometimes there is a ceiling of people like, well, that's not going to happen. And that's pretty difficult for personalities, a personalities, you know, you maybe being told no in that scenario. Well, what's the angle, right? As a business owner, what's the, what's the angle? That's really interesting, man. Um, it sounds like even just listening to it, kind of the McDonald's story, somebody as a partner kind of had the next round of stuff. You had the food and then you guys kind of partnered in that direction. What was yeah, the, um... unfortunately... go ahead. So unfortunately, my partner got us lawyer who didn't write our documents correctly. And in the franchise business, I tell people this all the time. If you're going to start a franchise, you either have to blow it up or you are at the mercy of your franchisees. We'll never own a franchise company with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten locations. Even 20 is tough. This is why when you see franchises launch, they blow it up to 50, 100, 150, 200, because you have to overcome 
uh, initial inertia. You have to overcome your ability for your franchisees to control you. You have to overcome their ability to sue you out of existence. And you need to have enough revenue coming in that you can do what you need to do. And unfortunately, that sometimes means fighting with your franchisees. So I learned a lot about the franchising business back then that I've been able to carry forward. I think that's a really interesting statement because I, I think that conversations I like to have a lot of times is um, inertia and momentum. And that's interesting how you just position that and um, literally looking at it as I'm not going to have enough inertia, I'm not going to have enough momentum if I don't have enough franchises, because in a way, it's kind of what you're sharing. It's kind of like, you know, investing in a hedge fund or something like that. And you say, hey, we're going to get these 10 different businesses and then two will probably survive, except expecting mm -hmm. the eight probably won't make it. Um, I, I got so many things I want to dive into, but I, ha I had to see if I can grab this. Um, does a an Eclipse 550 jet mean anything to you? Yeah, I had a I had a share in an Eclipse 550. So I had a, I had a Cirrus share with a little air company, and I've had a share in the Eclipse 550 as well. Um, interesting jet. I would probably not pick it again, but interesting jet, but I did have some fun with it. And then what did you pick? Is it a Circa? Is that the next one? Cirrus. So I, ha Cirrus. I had, a, so my, my very first plane was a diamond. Then I sold that and I went into an airshare program. So we had five Cirruses, SR22 turbos, flew those. And then we bought an Eclipse uh, jet, Eclipse 550, uh, and had that for about a year or so. The problem was the guy that was running the airshare program was Let's just say I'm not going to mention his name, but he was stealing from the company and ended up bankrupting it. That all the planes repossessed, and a lot of people lost a lot of money in that deal. So got out of. I managed to get out without losing anything, and then I went back and I literally just took delivery of my latest plane, which I own outright, two weeks ago. So I've been flying it all over the place. Yeah, I was trying to. I don't know much about planes, but I was doing my good little Google search, and I said, you know, if I can find the plane, that might be. <laughs> it's it, this is one of your i could this is a hobby and one thing that uh you know if someone owns a porsche or you know it's me with fighting i was like man i, th I think the plane thing is gonna get them because you know I, this has got to be a love for you it is i love flying i flew for the army um i was a right seat in novi one mohawk this was 87 to 91 before i got out and then got my private license maybe 15 years ago and i've been through a series of planes as i said you know over the time and i just love flying i mean i I jokingly say this, I was flying to Florida with my daughter the other day and we were, you know, just sitting up there and there's nothing to do when you're flying, by the way, you take off and you land everything else in between is on autopilot. And we're just looking around talking. And I said, yeah, honey, I'm a pilot. And he goes, I know daddy, it's pretty cool. I said, I know. I still think it's cool. 15 years later. It's just one of those things in life I love to do. Yeah. That's, um, I think that there's certain things as I've looked at even your story and military and um, I saw you even booting up with a SWAT team and um, yeah. you've, you've kept the danger in uh, or let's say, let's say danger. I mean, danger for some people, but what is it about you think um, that continued personality as we, as we get older, that we still want that challenge. Do you think, what do you think it is about yourself that um, Jason, obviously you lead we're people? We're warriors. It, 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 entrepreneurs and their soul. We don't get to go out and fight battles anymore, but we're still warriors. And we always need a battle to fight. We need a challenge. We need to push ourselves. We need to push our bodies. We need to push beyond our limits. This is why entrepreneurs succeed when they do. It's because they're constantly pushing, whether it's mentally, physically, or whatever. We're warriors at heart, 
right? You're a Mai Tai fighter. You're a warrior at heart. And you take that same drive and that same discipline and that same, you know, need to go out and, and conquer something and win. And that's how you succeed in business. It's that indelible drive that makes you keep moving forward. Even when you're getting punched in the face and knocked down and, and beat up and kicked around, you still get back up and you still move forward. That's the warrior drive. And pretty much all successful entrepreneurs, male or female, have that drive. I think that's a common trait. So yeah, I joined city council. I ran for office. I got elected. I stood over the public safety, which means I'm over police and fire. And because of that, I get to do some really cool stuff. So I got to do the shoot houses with the SWAT team and pretend like we're raiding and climb hundred foot ladders with the fire department and, you know, just do stuff every little kid wants to do. You know, I call it chasing your passions. Mm-hmm. I love those passions. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting. I actually didn't, you know, we're built um, for camaraderie. Um, actually, I haven't even brought this up. Um, but my father, I was kind of telling you to hang out with him, but, uh, he had just, uh, he had gotten melanoma. We've been doing this for a couple of months, um, and, uh, got it removed from his head and, and we got kind of a clear, not a full clear bill yet, but we got a kind of clear none of it's in his head. And it was kind of a thing that was pretty exciting to get that as a family member and know your dad's going to be okay a little bit in the seventies. But he told me a friend of him came up to him and he said, you know, grabbed him by his arm, told me today. And he says, he grabbed him by his arm and he said, you're going to beat this cancer. You're going to, you're going to beat this. And I said, dad, you know, the thing is he's not going to be in it. I said, but the thing that you just witnessed is two guys. We like to fight a battle together. Mm-hmm. Brotherhood. And regardless of it, we, we want to have that camaraderie, the story of 300. Um, and there's even studies and maybe it's not the right thing to say, but, and you would, you would contest this being in the military. I didn't go in the military, but that's probably why a lot of times people come back from war and they're like, I'd rather go back with my buddies because there's something about being on the edge of survival of, of war and things like that. What do, you, what do you think that is about us? Adrenaline and camaraderie, right? Mm-hmm. I have friends in the special forces. It's adrenaline and camaraderie. And they, they sometimes they come back from the real world and it's just not there anymore. They don't have those guys that are willing to stand up and fight and live and die for them. And then they don't know what they're doing. You know, they're wandering around in some corporate shield job and they struggle. You know, they don't have that same thing. There's something special about it. Um, you're a man of many skills. Uh, and I think you, from just getting impression, uh, you respect those skills and you became a writer. When, when did that, when did, when did that happen? How did, you know, I just finished, yeah, I finished my third book and I I was telling somebody the other day, the very first book that I wrote, which was two years ago, the title for that book had sat on my computer for probably 15 years. Uh, and I come up with this concept and there's a story behind it. It's called, I give the dumb kids hope. And it's a my, story about my life and coming from the background I came from. And my children both have higher education, master's degrees. My daughter has an MBA. And the story comes from a discussion we had when she was in high school and she'd stay up every night studying till one o'clock in the morning. And she was a straight A student, you know, and I used to tell her, I said, honey, you got to go to bed. Your body needs rest. You don't need to do all this studying. And she would say, daddy, you need to support my educational goals. I got to get good grades. I got to get a good college. I got to get a good job. I said, honey, you don't need straight A's. I promise. Okay. Your education is not that important. It's not so important that you're going to give up sleep and and sacrifice your body. And she said, yes, it is. And I said, honey, if education is so important, how do you explain me? I failed out of high school at 16 and we're living in a mansion and I have a beach house and a lake house and an airplane and boats and cars and wave runners and I don't work and I'm 40 years old. How do you explain me? 
And she said, it's interesting, daddy, we were having a conversation the other day in school about you. And we decided that you give the dumb kids hope. And I was like, that's a badge of honor. Like, I, and so I said, that's the title of my first book. And it sat on my computer for about 15 years before I wrote it. Wow. And I remember when I finished writing that book and it's really life lessons um, for my children. It was originally life lessons for my children, but I finished it and I was out in Park City and I was out skiing for like a month. I finished a book and I walked up the street to the Wasatch Brewery and I was sitting there eating my barbecue sandwich. And I thought to myself, I'm not done writing. And so I picked up my phone and jotted down some more concepts and came back and started my second book, which was the dropout multimillionaire uh -huh, I got that. and finished that in about six months. And then I finished that one and I said, I'm still not done writing. So I just wrote another one and it's called No, the Psychology of Sales and Negotiation, which interestingly enough, the title for that book has also been on my computer for 22 years. So 22 years after I wrote the title and wrote one chapter, I picked it back up and I wrote it in about two weeks. I think there's something anchored here. I think that's interesting to have the conversation about, and I've kind of done it in my life a little bit, but I think you just brought it out to people. And, and I'm going to come back to the, to the book though. Um, I like to drop little things in my life that maybe I'll do a little bit later. Exactly. Uh, case in point, um, as a martial artist, I've, I've liked the evolution of what I've done because uh, it didn't destroy my body. So it's a young age to kind of started karate. And then I, at the time it was like what nineties or so late, early 2000s jujitsu started to come to the U S but it's pretty rough. I mean, at the time, you know, many people were wrecking original uh, jujitsu out here. was just like knees in the elbow passing guard. It was just really nasty. And I didn't really have the, <laughs> I don't have the legs and meaning the, actual muscle enough that it wasn't just terrible getting put onto my bone. But then I real as I got older, I said, Oh man, I'm gonna do Muay Thai. And so I started doing Muay Thai. And, but my, in my mind, I've always kind of just went back and did a little bit jujitsu, a little jujitsu point is that as I evolve, I'm now going to go into jujitsu. As I get older, jujitsu would be a great way to, for me to kind of feather out my, and then maybe do some wind chunk or something as I go out. But I think what <laughs> you just shared was you anchor things early on in certain times of your life that maybe you can't do right away, but you anchor mm -hmm. them, maybe feather off a little education. And then from there, the world kind of, it lets you kind of do it one day. <laughs> Have you found that? The, the idea is there, but the time wasn't life. right. Like, yeah. yeah. Time wasn't right then. And so Dang it sat it, there like as dating. an idea for 22 years. <laughs> it's like 20. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the time is yeah. not right. I'm sorry. It's, it's I'm sorry. You. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, it's really good to be on the one side of that one. But the, when you're on the other side of that one, it's not really <laughs> a good thing, you know, especially as the salespeople and entrepreneurs and things like that. But I thought that was just interesting. You you anchored something in your life and, and then you moved along and then somehow it kind of became relevant again. And I think it's also like someone said something one time. And they said, you know, I, cert I think certain people are just not meant for certain things. And I was like, I don't know if that's really true because you acquire all these skills that maybe some people had at a youthful age that you weren't able to learn until 20 years later, but then you have your skills and now all of a sudden there's, it makes sense. Right. And now you're like, oh, I can actually do this. I think it's probably skill driven. Yeah, it's the same concept of people aren't ready to learn until they're ready to learn. Right. Mm -hmm. I can tell you something today and tell you something in two years. Today, it means nothing in two years. You'll think it was the smartest thing I've ever, you know, you ever heard in your life because you weren't ready to hear it when you heard it. And later you were. 
when I wrote those titles, I wasn't ready to write it. 2015 or 20 years later, I was ready to write it. The concept never left. It was an inspirational concept. I put it down and later it came back and there you go. So I, I always say, don't, give, don't ever give up on an idea. It might not just be the right time right now, but that doesn't mean the idea is wrong or bad. It's just not ready right now. I think even opening up a little bit in this, um, in our conversation, you'd the way we had met, I, I reached out and gave a video. So it wasn't like you just sent something, but you had some really good things to say. But I think there's a statement that's very often overlooked is that the master will appear when you're ready to learn. That's exactly right. And I think that even in my life, um, martial arts things, it, it you never know when that master is going to appear. And I think that you as a student and even you as a student, um, you may be the master of one art, but you're not ready for the next one. <laughs> you also so, don't know who that master is going to be. And I'll give you a real yeah, quick that's example. That's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah. I, I have an assistant who works for me, Jesse, right? She takes care of most everything for me here, uh, my whole podcast and, and my books and everything. And when we launched this new venture, the mastermind and consulting project, you know, when I tend to launch a business, I go, hundred miles an hour. I like get laser focused and I have one goal and that's to accomplish the goal. And I'm going to go over it, around it, through it, under it, however I have to get there. And I get very focused on what I do. And one of the traits that I know about myself is when I get focused, I get short and it's because I'm ADHD. I got so many thoughts in my head. If I'm addressing my thoughts, I address them quick. Yes, no, do that, do this, do that, do this. And he came to me one day and she said, I have to talk to you. And I said, what's going on? And she said, listen, you're successful because of what you're doing, but what you're doing is mean and you need to stop. People don't operate like you and you cannot operate with all these people if that's the way you're going to act. And I was like, holy shit, he's right. The master in this case was my assistant telling me that everybody doesn't think like I do. They don't operate like I do. They don't take my bullet point laser focus, you know, machine gun fire, uh, instructions that way. And I need to understand that as the leader of the organization and back down and, and work with people in the way that they can be worked with. So I learned something from her. You never know who's going to teach you something. I think that's such a good play. And I mean, obviously we're in a, a business podcast. We talk about entrepreneurship, but I think um, it was interesting because I watch a lot of fighting myself. And I, talk, I talk too much about fighting on the podcast too. Um, but ultimately, you know, when when people make enough mistakes if you get to that point and i don't know if maybe it's just age maybe you're just like well you know what i can't go through the brick wall anymore <laughs> like mm -hmm. there's like maybe i could take a little bit of because i think the other thing too is that again going back to i say this because it was my same personality when i was a kid you're not going to tell me what to do like you're just not going to tell me what to do i think that right. gets you to where you're at but i think that um where i was getting on fighting is that skill is is one thing the mindset really is the thing that changes everything. Mm -hmm. And that is such a, excuse me, but like a fucked up thing to think. Cause that's, I'm, I'm wired to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I got it. And I got to think of it differently. I think that's not easy for people. It's no different than the, you know, and I tell my children this about education, right? My, my daughter, you have an MBA. Awesome. That will get you in the door. It will not make you successful. Your ultimate success will depend on you, your personality, what's in your head, how you react, how you deal with, how you manage the decisions you make. Education is a starting point and it's awesome, but it's not going to make you successful. Getting in the door is one thing. Actually capitalizing on whatever it is is out there 
is a completely different thing, right? So it's kind of, kind of the same concept. Um, kind of going back, you've got uh, your book that's going to release. I had something here, and I thought this was kind of interesting. This is, um, I'm not going to teach you how to manipulate people into doing something they don't want to do. This is not hardcore. It's a professional soft sell. Using human nature, psychology, and the power of the right words to move people where you want them to go. Uh, negotiation lesson number one. Every sale is a negotiation, no matter how big or small. We're going to talk yep. a little bit about sales. All right. Yeah. I, I, I hate, I hate what I call slamming. And in the sales world, slamming is I'm going to, I'm going to manipulate you by not telling you the truth, but not telling you a lie. I'm going to manipulate my words so that you think I'm saying one thing when I'm really saying another I'm doing that to convince you to do something that you're maybe not really willing or wanting to do or sending you to buy something that you're really not wanting to buy. And that never lasts, right? In the sales world, we call that uh, you're going to have terrible persistency and retention, particularly if you're selling a product that has a long-term payout month after month. So I don't like doing that. Um, I don't teach people to do that. I don't like organizations who do that. They typically do it when they have a subpar product as opposed to something of value, right? So. That's kind of where that comes from. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hardcore sales guy. I'm more about, and I talk a lot about this in the book, a conversational selling guy, right? Tell me why you're buying something. Tell me why you need it. Tell me when you want it. Tell me where else you've looked at it. And then I can use all that information to come back and show you how my product will fill all those needs and get you to make a positive decision that you came here to make anyway, right? So yeah. there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Yeah, there is a lot to unpack. Um, That's why we know, call it I, the psychology of sales. God, man, it's a good statement, right? It's a cluster, isn't it? it um, it's, it's understanding how people think and how they react. I mean, that's all. That's what sales is all about. And most people fail to understand, as we talk in the book, the very first objection. I don't know how far you got into the book, but the very first objection is what keeps most people from actually buying something. That's why most people, most business, most salespeople fail. They don't get it. Uh, interesting. I, uh, had gone back and, and, uh, in, and looked at some of the stuff and, and it kind of even plays true right now. Uh, I went back and looked at all this stuff and people I've worked with and done all this stuff. I was like, man, what, what's like a common thing? I mean, you got to get out there. You got to get to know people. I was like, man, what's this common thing? I went back and looked at it. I sent a video. I just introduced myself, like, just like, Hey, this is kind of what I do, who I am kind of things like that. And I went back and I realized that, man, you know, I had in many times in my life, we go through the next level, meaning like if you're selling enough, you're kind of disconnected from the customer more and more, right? I mean, you're not very close. I mean, we didn't open this up. You have restaurants and things like that, but you're not very close to the customer. I mean, you understand his human behavior, but you're not really close mm -hmm. to him. And, and the further out, I always tell people, the, the bigger the business, it's more avatar based at that point. But I started to realize that in in people, um, I, I you know it because I've been in the team for a while. I forgot how valuable it is just to get somebody to say hello and just have a normal. This is kind of what I'm about, and let's hang out a little bit. And the internet has created these barriers of kind of what you're saying. It's either you're a either you're a um, influencer, right, or you're somebody trying to sell some something like. Uh, for lack of better words, in China, if you've ever followed like WeChat or anything like that, it's like they got a 
it's almost like Snapchat all over there trying to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I underestimated that again in my life. <laughs> I think it's interesting the comment you made that we get the bigger your business gets, the farther away you can get from the customer. And I would say two things. Number one, farther away you get as the CEO slash entrepreneur business owner. But at some point, if your organization is selling somebody something, somebody in your organization is still having those one-on-one conversations with those people, and they still need to understand that. While you may not, somebody in your organization does. Even in a restaurant, I've got a server walking up to a table who's essentially a salesperson, right? Yeah. If the server has a bad attitude, the people have a, a negative experience and I've lost that customer. If they have a great attitude and they help them, then I have a good salesperson and that customer will come back over and over and over. So while it's not me, I still have an organization of people who are face-to-face. And if you're going to build something of any size, your sales force better understand what they're doing, whether they're selling food or TVs or cars or you know e-commerce products. Somebody still has to sell it. Even if it's even if it's an online sale, it's the marketing you designed around the sale online still is essentially you selling it through the use of your technology. Sure. And if you put the right product out there that your customer's looking at online, that's what's going to sell them. This is where I was coming when we were talking originally, right? When I look at your stuff online, I have to be like, I know exactly what you do. I know exactly yeah. how it's going to help me. I know exactly how much it's going to cost. And that's why I'm going to buy it. You're creating the sales engine or the face-to-face, even though it may not be you doing it. And if you can't create that clarity, that's where the customer is going to go away. I thought uh, it opened up a really good conversation. Um, I like how this is going. We've had some fun and some technical, right? Um, I think that uh, one of the things that where I guess I was having the conversation was basically someone has to do it, but you personally forget that that's how you're done. And I, and I think that it's the same thing when you have a guy who has a business, he gets older and then he has to go out there and start the business again. He starts it from the higher level many times thinking that he can top down it, but he forget that, man, you're, you were grassrooting, <laughs> you were grassrooting marketing. You were out there doing it. They were getting to know you. They were inviting you to certain things and you forgot that that's how people with the saying, right? I mean, I think you'd agree people buy from who they like. Absolutely. The five keys to sales, right? They have to like you, trust you, make you think that you're looking out for their best interest. You have to come across as a professional and you have to make a connection. That's how you become a master closer. And if you can't do those five things, you'll be an average salesperson or you'll fail and you'll quit. But you got to make people like you. And it's such an interesting concept. Um, I know that you just had, uh, I definitely love this guy, Robert Green on your show. And, uh, that guy's amazing. But the statement that he makes about the art of seduction is something that has been continually in my life and realizing that that art of seduction is the networking that you do and then maybe flashing what you can do for people. That's kind of what the offer is. <laughs> yep. And I, and I think that us being able to use that art of seduction um, in a healthy way, I think that what you were talking about here is manipulated in a way of having a good relationship with somebody, you know, look, look where our relationship is. We're on a podcast now, even though, you know, it kind of went in a little formula. Where do you think? um, And I think that this is something that is a good conversation because I think you have this knowledge here. Uh, Where do you think the marketing, I don't want to say starts because that could be a whole conversation, but what do you think it ends in the sale starts? Because I personally ran into uh, a big issue when I was younger 
And I remember that I sold cars is the first thing that I sold. But then when I went out into business, I, I would go out there and sell from the front line, forgetting that there was a whole marketing machine in front of me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk so about this in the book as well. Yeah, and I've, yeah. I've actually got a podcast coming out on this shortly, and we've done a whole training series on it. And the challenge that I think a lot of salespeople have, and one of the reasons they fail is because they think that they're, they think that the sale starts at the end of process, right? I, I, I call the sales process four boxes, introduction, fact finding, presentation, and sale. Too many salespeople think that they're selling at the back end, and that's why they fail, right? You are selling when you are making the connection. You are selling when you're getting to know somebody. Because remember, they buy from people they like. So your job is to make them like you. And that's when they've already decided that they want to buy from you or they don't. If you walk in and you meet a salesperson and the guy comes across as, as, as an a-hole, you immediately aren't going to buy from him. It's got no, it, it won't matter how much he tries to sell you on the back end. Doesn't, he doesn't, I don't like you today. So my job is to get you to like me, get you to trust me, get you to think that I'm looking out for your best interest think that I'm and make myself a professional. And if I've done all those things and I've asked you the right questions and I found out what you want and why you want it and when you want it, you're going to make the sale yourself. I shouldn't be selling you. If I'm trying to close you or overcome objections at the end of the sale process, you've already lost a customer. Mm-hmm. People need to understand that the sale's going on when I first start talking to you, right? If you're buying something from me, Jason, and I, I th- this is full chapter, right? If you come in and you say, hey, uh, I'm looking to buy whatever. I'd say, well, Jason, let me ask you a couple of questions. Generally, what I need to do is ask you some questions, right? And then based on your answers, I'm going to make a recommendation. My recommendation will be based on what I have to offer. If what I have to offer you is something that works for you, I'll run over pricing with you. And if you like it, I'll let you decide if, that, if that's something you want to do. Now, is that fair enough? And your answer is, well, sure. You're going to explain it to me and make a recommendation, tell me the pricing, and then I get to d- decide. Yeah, that's fair. So I've already taken away the first, second, and third objections. I've set the, the process in place. I, you know what's going to happen next. And then I start getting to know you, you know? Why are you looking for this? Have you looked anyplace else? Have you shopped the competition? Why didn't you buy from them, right? Sales is about questions, not about talking. And when you get all those answers and he says, well, I looked at so-and-so and I looked at this and the price was a little high and I didn't like that. Well, why'd you come see me? Well, I looked you up and heard that you had something good. All right, so now I know pretty much a lot of what I need to know about you. Let's talk about product, right? My products start anywhere from 500 to 5,000. I don't want to talk about all my products. I could be here all day. Where do you fall in that range of 500 to 5,000, you know, based on your budget? What would you like to hear about? Um, what can I get for a thousand? Let's talk about a thousand. Now I have his budget, right? I never ask people their budget because they're going to lie. And this is psychological process we take people through that I'm getting, I'm closing him by getting positive affirmation statements one after the other, after the other. And I now know he wants a thousand dollar product. He wants to buy it from me because his friend told him it was good. The competition did this. He didn't like that. I know why he wants it. I know when he wants it. And so by the time we get to the end, I say, well, sounds like what we have works for you. You want to go ahead and get this rolling? And that was a sale. There was no sale. The sale was the entire process. So the answer to your question in short is the entire process of your conversation is a sale. From start to finish. That's a long you answer. Two, that was amazing. And I think it's um it's interesting because the conversations coming up and even and I and I like to have the conversations that we continue to kind of grow through it, but um the word of this has really been going. I actually did a little training in this group yesterday about it. 
but I was like, you know, it's the, the art of seduction is really getting people to feel comfortable around you. Whatever the next move is going to be, it'll be determined at that time. If you look at it um, in the male, female world or whatever, I mean, you get out there, you seduce, and then you kind of see, can I touch your boob or something, right? And then you get a no, and then you're in the friend zone. That means your offer's that good or something. I don't know. <laughs> but when you look at it like that, um, what I've been trying to do is really look at it in the art of seduction is that I'm out there networking, getting to know people. And I think what you're saying is that the natural interest of, well, what do you do is probably more common than or in curiosity of kind of what building relationships are, because we want to know what people's value is maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the I art of seduction is, it, it's about seducing. If you're going to use that terminology, we're seducing the client into liking us. Let's start with that. Yeah. And we're seducing them into the product that we have and why it works for them. And I, I like to use simplistic examples. Uh, and the one I use in the book a lot is, is car sales because it's such an obvious sales situation, right? Yeah. And I jokingly say this story all the time and I've got real life stories, but when you go to a car lot and you talk to a salesperson, they're not handing you a owner's manual and telling you to read it. They're not taking you back to the finance department to learn how, you know, all the finance works on 35 page contract. When you walk on the lot, they want to know what color, leather or cloth, standard automatic, convertible, hard top, you want to take it for a ride. You know why they ask you those questions? Because they want you to fall in love. They're seducing you with the things that you want. Now let's take this for a ride and you fall in love and you think about how you're going to drive around and impress all your friends and the girlies on A1 Avenue. A little iced tea uh, reference there. I uh, grabbed it right was, away, brother. That was good, <laughs> dude. That was good. You broke broke the ice there. A little iced tea Detroit in my Detroit Avenue. Girls work. Now I'm going to sing the whole fucking song. All right, go yeah. ahead. But anyway, it's about the seduction. So he's seducing you into loving a car before he gets into the hardcore details of all the yeah. crap that goes along with it, right? Whatever my product is, if I'm selling solar panels or landscaping or or food, I'm I'm putting a picture of a hamburger on the, the sheet. So you look at it and go, holy crap, that looks good, man. I really want to eat that thing. Or solar panels, look, man, I can save you all kinds of money or landscaping. I'm going to make your house look better than all your neighbors. What's the seduction that I'm selling? That's really what it's about. I learned a very valuable lesson. I started in car sales. I probably started trying to sell my parents out of detention or whatever. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> the real truth, not to get spankings. I used to negotiate, you know, kinds of stuff. But um, when I was in the car it, it, selling cars, um, I, I learned a very valuable lesson. And that was that um, they wanted to buy the car, but if I didn't, in a healthy way, which is something that you'd mentioned here, manipulate them into getting, it was always like they already wanted it, but I need to help them get there. And once I kind of had that, I mean, I was 19 years old, I was a little more ruthless back then, but it, it really came down to that, that it was a healthy manipulation. It was, I can tell you already want this. But why, Jason? When, why? Because they're going to buy it anyway. Manipulate them. But why did you have to manipulate them? And this is the first, this is the first objection to every sale of every of any product everywhere in the world. The first objection is they don't trust you as a salesperson. They don't like you as a salesperson because they think you're going to take advantage of them. You're going to sell them something they don't want. You're going to sell yeah. them something that's more than they could have got at someplace else. They don't trust you, which means they don't like you, right? That's why you had to manipulate them. 
You had to get them, manipulate them to get them to believe what you were telling them, even though they didn't trust you. So no matter what it is you're selling, you have to understand the first objection is people don't like salespeople. And it's not you personally they don't like. It's when you put your sales hat on because they think that you're going to sell them and they're afraid of what's going to happen next. It's called the fear of the unknown. You have to get over that objection first and then you can move forward, right? And that's what we do in the fact finding and in, in the conversation and having a regular conversation with people and make the connection and talk about who they are and their kids. And I was from Ohio and I was in the military and I used to have fast cars and fly planes and find a connection. And that's how you overcome that, that fear of, of you being a salesperson. That's why you have to manipulate them. And you know, anybody that's maybe not been in sales that watches this, like it happens to you all the time. You just don't recognize, let's say that like you're an introvert and you're sitting in and you're kind of sitting in the back and you know, you're not doing anything. All of a sudden somebody walks by and like, they're wearing the same shirt as you. And then all of a sudden, like you lighten up. And the next thing you know, you're telling stories about your dog. You're telling stories about, and you're like, well, where did this, where did this guy come from? We weren't yeah. even doing any of that. It's because you allow someone to express themselves freely. And I think that that's a, a very powerful thing. Um, You've got to find how, a connection. Like if I wear my Boulder, Colorado shirt running around, people are like, oh, you're from Boulder. And that starts a conversation. That's a connection. So find a connection. I mean, full stop. Sales, I mean, that's why connection. I have everything up here. It's like, I'm trying to find, <laughs> I'm trying to find, do you like surfing? Do you like fighting? Do you like guitar? Do you like electric guitar? Like, do you, I mean, who doesn't like, I mean, that is very full stop. That's why I do it. It is the stuff I enjoy yeah. full all the way. But the reason why I enjoy these things is they have certain connotations, certain products that are attached to them. There's certain, and then once you get into someone's world, then, then it's, you know, I think that's the statement of, you know, if you could get someone to buy something small from you, they'll, they'll buy a lot of stuff from you. Yep. 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 Um, now, I mean, we, one we, product you got them. yeah, buy more than product. Now you went into, and I'll kind of, I want to go into a couple of these things. Um, you decided to dive into the restaurant business after that. Was that the transfer? Cause I mean, landscape. No, I went into insurance. Grass. So I started selling yeah. insurance and sold a company in the early stages of the dot-com boom. I created this direct-to-consumer call center that had never been done in health insurance. And so we sold it to a venture capital firm and then went and created uh, a, an online enrollment platform for the health insurance industry. That company went public and then back private, went and started another one that's um, called Get Insured Day. That company like nine or 10 states, health insurance enrollment platforms. Did another company was online marketing and lead gen. So we did lead gen and the subprime credit and insurance space. Sold that to a private equity firm in 06. And I went into consulting because interestingly enough, when you sell a couple of companies in venture capital or private equity, suddenly the corporate world thinks that you're really smart, even though I was probably mowing their grass five years ago. So I started doing consulting for corporate uh, sales organizations and training thousands of people, did billions in sales. Um, did that for a while. Started another direct-to-consumer call center in the Medicare space. And then I used to, but I loved hanging out at restaurants. I've never used my stove, by the way. If you ever come to my house, my stove's never been used. Not once. I don't cook. Don't know anything about cooking. But I do like to go to a restaurant. I do like to order off menu, meaning, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And my friends are all like, why don't you just buy a dang restaurant? So I did. It ah. failed. But it failed. First year, I lost 50 grand. So I did what most people do, and I bought four more. Figured if one failed, I could buy four more and we sold the first one and start over. And then over the last, next 10 years, we bought and sold and built and uh, we're building a small chain right now called Central City Tavern. So 
Uh, I don't work in the restaurants. I don't know how to cook. Don't know how to bartend. Don't know how to run them. Don't know anything about them. But I have uh, I have a little restaurant chain I own. Um, did some consulting. Did wrote the books. Got into politics. I sit on city council in my hometown now. Own a bunch of real estate. Uh, rental property kind of stuff. So I've kind of branched out and diversify and do all kinds of stuff now. And then, of course, I started building the mastermind organization and doing the one-on-one coaching programs and stuff for entrepreneurs. Uh, I think I think it's interesting when uh, you hear people's stories. Um, what's the thing that keeps you, uh, you know, you're, let, let's say that, uh, let's compare it to like baseball, you know, some of the stories you're sharing, those, those are MLB, you know, those are MLB games. You know, you're in the game, you're in the big game. And I've been around a lot of different people in my life. What is the thing that keeps you grounded? And I think, um, what's the thing that keeps you normal? Because you come across pretty cool and you come across that way. What are the things that keep you there? You know, when I was when I was growing up in the early days, I was the guy who had the dream board, right? Picture of a watch, picture of a car, picture of a plane, picture of a house. And I, because I grew up with nothing, I always wanted all these things. When we sold the companies in 06 and 08, I basically made enough money that I got to get everything I ever wanted. And I was done. Like I just... I used to joke after in 2009, I said, I have no goals. I have no ambitions and I have no interest in doing anything. And I kind of just did nothing. I didn't have that drive anymore because I'd already achieved what I wanted to achieve. And that's when I did consulting and I bought a restaurant and started just messing around doing whatever. And I called it chasing my passions, right? I'm a pilot's license. I'm a dive master, climb some mountains, travel the world. I didn't have that big drive to go out and I'm not a billionaire, right? I'm not even a hundred millionaire. I have enough money. I can live the rest of my life and do whatever I want. And I was happy. So I just didn't have that drive. And then then you throw on top of that, the fact that no matter how successful we are, everybody still has a little bit of that uh, imposter syndrome in them. Remember I'm the kid who failed out of high school, right? So there's still that little voice in my head that says, you know, you're really not that good. You got lucky. That's the voice. That's the voice of saying, can you believe I'm still a pilot? Yes. I'm a freaking pilot. That's the voice in my head saying that. That's exactly right. I never thought about that, but that's exactly right. So I have that counterbalance in my head telling me I'm not that good while the world thinks I've done all these great things. And then every now and then I get a drive again, like the one I just launched when we launched this new new company. So and I'll go back at it, but I don't know, man. I, I, I heard this statement from uh, a friend of ours the other day, Brian, and he said, money amplifies your personality. If you're a jerk and you get money, you're going to be a big jerk. If you're a nice guy, you'll be a nicer guy. So um, I like to think apparently I wasn't a jerk. My man, this has been an incredible episode. Um, I mean, we went everything from planes we, to everything. I mean, we talked about sales. We talked about past life. Appreciate you coming on, man. We get um, some really cool people on here. I think you're going to make a stamp in this podcast i think a lot of people can learn from you how do they uh how do they find you man uh you can go to my website it's www.brianwillmedia.com and uh my books my podcasts my blogs pretty much everything my mastermind coach everything's on my website brianwillmedia.com and you know what uh there's a contact form in there you can hit me up uh, ask me anything or you can find me all over social media i'm pretty much everywhere these days so and hey, Jason, if there's anything I can do for you, my friend, you need to let me know. I appreciate that. I got to tell you that uh, your reels are pretty good, man. And you, you, you I am take learning. some angles and you do it your own way. 
and I can tell that, you know, you're doing it who you are. And so if you guys get a chance to check out his reels as well, there's a pretty kick gas. Well, man, Brian, this has been an incredible podcast. This is another episode of the Moved Entrepreneur Evolved podcast. Make sure you go back there, like, and subscribe. Make sure you like this podcast as well. We've got some amazing people. I always try to say that they're incredible too, because everyone comes on here as an incredible story. Thanks again, my friend, and I hope to have you on again. Jason, it was awesome. Thank you, sir. If you like this episode, make sure you smash the like button and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just like Nike is to athletes, Moved is to entrepreneurs.